Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in His image to reflect His glory and grace. Well, good evening. My name is Justin, and if I haven't met you before, I am lead pastor here at Icon, and uh, it's good to have you. We are continuing our uh, series in Genesis. Uh, This is our second to last week. Next week is the final week of the series, and then the week after that will be in Advent, which uh, will will put us in John chapter 1. And we'll actually do John uh, from December 1st all the way through Easter. So we'll we'll be uh, in the Gospel of John for a while. Um, You will notice, if you've been with us and uh, when we jump in here, that we are skipping the story of Noah. And uh, we're doing that for two reasons. Uh, One is I made a huge mistake and uh, and was supposed to preach uh, judgment from Noah last week, but somehow made it work from the story of Cain and Abel. I was very impressed with my ability to mess that up (laughs) and still do it. Uh, uh, The other reason is it turns out uh, the story of Noah is five chapters long. Who knew? I didn't (laughs) Uh, until I really started to look. Genesis 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, it's all Noah. And so that's just long. And, you know, we know the story. There's a lot of water and stuff. And uh, we'll double back to it later. Uh, But if you're wondering why we're in uh, Genesis 11, talking about Tower of Babel, uh, that's kind of why. So uh, we are talking about diversity this evening, Christianity and diversity. We've been doing a bunch of different topics during this series, uh, which is you know not my preference to do kind of topical stuff, but I think it's been good. A lot of important stuff we've been talking about, and uh, and tonight in particular we're talking about diversity. And I want to start at the beginning, just to say what we're not talking about and kind of why. We're not talking uh, tonight about racism specifically, and, and for a, a couple of reasons. One is um, that this text that we're in is not really about racism, and so I don't want to make a text say something it doesn't actually say. The Tower of Babel is not explicitly about racism. Two is that uh, racism is evil. And I think at this point, self-evidently so, uh, though that doesn't keep us from at times, at times acting racistly, I think most of us would at least acknowledge the fact that the idea, the practice of racism is evil. Biblically, certainly, it is self-evident. Uh, and so the third piece is that what we are going to talk about tonight is really the seeds of racism and nationalism. It's where that stuff begins, uh, and it it begins here in uh, Genesis chapter 11. Um, Before we get into the text itself, I want to take a little bit of a step back because I think that Christianity, and I won't say unfairly, but I'll just say wrongly or misinformedly, if that's a word, uh, is thought of as, sometimes thought of as a, a white religion or a Western religion. And the, the truth is that much of the power in Christianity in the last, uh, say, couple hundred years has certainly been concentrated in the West. A lot of the influence has been concentrated in the West. But when you really get into the actual facts 
Uh, Christianity is not and should not and cannot be described as a Western religion for a number of reasons. One is, it literally was started by an Asian man in Asia, right? Like, let's start there. Jesus was born in the Middle East, which is technically West Asia, and, uh, and, and was a Jewish man, was not a white person, was a brown person, to use that kind of language, like my friend Paolo likes to say. He's a brown person. Uh, Paolo, too. And uh, <laughs> he and Jesus, they got a lot, a lot in common. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so literally the, the, the beginnings of Christianity um, were in Asia. In fact, Christianity found itself in Africa, India, China, and all of Asia and Africa long before it was ever in America, okay? And so the history of Christianity and its development uh, is largely non-Western, Okay? In reality, Christianity being an American religion is only as old as America, which is to say not that old, only uh, a couple hundred years old. Before that, it was largely an Eastern Hemisphere religion. Okay? So oftentimes, we can make the mistake of thinking about what is, uh, our, what's happening in our lifetime in what we know of history in our immediate area, and that can skew a historic view of a faith. In fact, uh, inarguably, Christianity is the most diverse faith in the history of humanity. Christianity is the only faith to flourish on all of the continents, except Antarctica. Soon, I hope, we'll send missionaries there, those penguins. But it has thrived on every continent. In fact, today, even today, the median Christian or the average Christian in the world today is a woman of color not in America, okay? So both historically speaking and even currently demographically speaking, Christianity is not a white Western religion. Now, that's not to say that we white Westerners don't look at Christianity and think about Christianity and act as if Christianity is a white Western religion. That's a separate topic that we are gonna be talking about tonight. But historically speaking, demographically speaking, that is not the case. In fact, uh, Yale professor and kind of leading black public intellectual by the name of Stephen Carter, uh, quoted in Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity, says this. That was a long intro. There is a difficulty endemic to today's secular left, an all too frequent weird refusal to acknowledge the demographics of Christianity. Carter points out that in the U.S., black women are by far the most Christian demographic, while, quote, around the globe, the people most likely to be Christians are women of color. He warns, when you mock Christians, you're not mocking who you think you are. 
Okay, so like I said, the median Christian today is a woman of color who does not live in the United States, but even in the United States, the most committed Christians, when they do Pew Research surveys and talk not just about who calls themselves Christians, but who actually takes their Christian faith seriously, when it's broken down racially, the most committed Christians are African-American Christians followed closely by Latino Christians and only then by Caucasian Christians. Okay, and so this is, this is a, a, a misconception that we can have and certainly those of us who live in the West and even the West of the West on the West Coast can see our world through primarily Caucasian kind of Western postmodern eyes because that is much of the culture that we imbibe, but that is at a global and historical scale simply not the case. Now, this does not obscure, should not for us obscure the fact that Christianity in our lifetime, in our part of the world, has been dominated in very unhelpful ways uh, and, and at times very sinful ways by uh, kind of the postmodern Western white. In 1960, Martin Luther King Jr. was quoted in an interview saying, I think it is one of the tragedies of our nation, one of the shameful tragedies that 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours of the week. And this is often the case okay, in churches all across our country. And so the question we want to talk about tonight is why is that the case and how can an ancient story like the Tower of Babel speak to us about this issue? So if you haven't already, turn to Genesis chapter 11. We will start in verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Stop real quick there because we'll miss what's happening here if we don't stop for a second. Every commentary, literally I think every commentary I read, made a point to say that this verse, verse 5, when it says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, is literally God mocking the people. Right, So let's not miss these moments when God mocks us, okay? It's really important for us to see those moments, right? So the people build a city and are going to try and build a tower that reaches up to the heavens. And the author goes out of his way to say that God had to come down in order to even see this tower that was so big and they were so proud of. It was a magnificent tower. Huge. It's huge. Love having alone in the front row. <laughs> Biggest fan. All right, verse six. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. 
Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, if you have grown up in church, or if you've been around church for any length of time, you have probably uh, read the story, heard the story, heard the story taught. If you've been uh, around culture, I mean, the, the idea of Babel is a kind of now an iconic story that transcends just the Bible story and has now become uh, kind of an idea for confusion and for arrogance and pride and all of these things. And, and while this story certainly has many of those elements... I think as we actually read the story and and see what is there instead of importing into the story things that we have heard or thoughts that we have had that actually aren't in the text, it may look a little different. Now, I, I, I genuinely and genuinely hate to do this and genuinely will not do this, but there is a translation, I won't call it an issue, but we'll call it an issue. Uh, where the, the, the Hebrew to English translation here obscures something that is small but is important for us to understand the meaning of the text. So a commentator by the name of Chelsea Mack uh, says it this way. She says, while the translation, through its use of the future tense in English, suggests that God is concerned about the ability of human beings to achieve any activity collectively planned and agreed upon in a time external to the narrative, meaning that God's mostly concerned about what they will do. If they can do this, they can do anything in the future. She says, there is no such tense specification in the Hebrew. Indeed, the text might just as easily read, look, there is one people and one language for them, and this is the beginning of what they are doing. Now it will not be impossible for them all that they are planning to do. Thus, God is not anxious about the plans the people may make in some future time, but concerned with their current intention to settle in Shinar. Okay. So it's not as if God looks down on them and goes, oh no, they have one language. Who knows what they'll invent to do? They could do anything. Their power is limitless. It's not what he's saying. That he is looking down on the people building this city and going, they will be able to accomplish what they are planning to do, which is to build a city that has a big tower in Shinar. Okay. So what's wrong with settling in Shinar? Two things. First, have you been there? It's terrible. First, actually first, they are choosing defense over dominion. Now, go back with me to Genesis chapter 1, because it hasn't been that long since we were in Genesis chapter 1, and I promise we'll eventually get out of Genesis chapter 1. But we have to remember that just not long before this, in terms of biblical uh, timeline, God had given humanity very clear instructions for what he made them for. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, 
be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is, as we've talked about many times, the cultural mandate, right? So God creates the world, creates humankind specifically, gives them, stamps them with his image, and then gives them a job and says, your job is to be fruitful, multiply, subdue, and have dominion over the whole earth. This was meant to be marching orders for them. This was meant to be an invitation to adventure, an invitation to conquest and exploration that God revealed to them his creation and said, go get it. Go see the mountains. Go, go hike through the valleys. Go uh, float down the rivers. Go see everything and do everything and explore and, and overcome all of the challenges. And it was meant to read as an invitation to adventure. But before they could embark on that adventure, sin changed everything. So just in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about this idea of sin being um, kind of the the self-turning in on oneself, as uh, St. Augustine called it, incurvitus in sea, the soul bent in upon itself. And so this this individual sin, this this increasing desire to care for the self and protect the self and cultivate the self and be obsessed about ourself, then writ large amongst a people, when we see one person doing that alongside another and another and another and another and another, and you see a people curving in on themselves you begin to see what is happening to the people in Shinar. That God had given them not just an invitation, uh, invitation, but a mandate. He had said, spread out over all of my creation. See what there is to see. Explore what there is to explore. Uh, Overcome all of the obstacles I will put in your way. And in so doing, see more about who I am, explore more and and observe more about who you are and how if you do that in community with one another on a team, you go like Lewis and Clark style and explore the world, you will not only learn more about God's world, but you will learn more about God and you will learn more about Clark or Lewis, whomever you are, and you will learn more about yourself. And it will be this increasing kind of explosion of the image of God spread out over all of God's creation. And yet, these people chose instead to stop instead of being sent and to create a city. And honestly, the tower gets a lot of uh, kind of uh, attention in this story but it is only spoken of the one time by the narrator and then when God mocks it, that's it. It's really not the point. In fact, four times in the passage, it talks about being dispersed. Read it again, read what the people say. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest, this is their concern, we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That's what they were worried about. They were worried about being spread out over the whole earth. 
That sounded scary to them. It sounded daunting. It sounded like they wouldn't be able to care for and protect themselves in the midst of that. It sounded like they didn't know what was around the next mountain or down in the next valley. And so instead of following God's mandate, obeying God's mandate and exploring God's world, they chose to stop. They chose to protect They chose to enclose themselves in walls, build a tower to make a name for themselves, to protect them from what might be out there instead of going to explore what might be out there, to overcome what might be out there, to exercise their God-given dominion over what might be out there. Another commentator described this moment this way, saying Babel was a moment when humanity turned in on itself and threatened to become tyrannical, self-absorbed, and stagnant. With the introduction of diversity, God saved humanity from tyranny and gave it back its mission. When God came down and confused their language, he wasn't just trying to create language. This isn't just an origin story for language. This is God saying, no, no, no. I gave you a mission in this world. I gave you a mission to be my icons, to be my image bearers, and to act like I would, to explore my world, to have dominion, to care for and cultivate and create the way I would. And you have rebelled against that mandate and tried instead to protect yourself from what's out there. So God diversifying their language was meant to get them back onto God's mission. Now, don't get me wrong, cities were meant to be built. This is not an anti-city passage, but cities are to be built as an expression of God's mission, not as a rejection of God's mission. God's people were meant to be spread out, to be dispersed, to fill the earth. And what's remarkable about this is that God's answer works within the system of sin that had been created. God sees the people sinning against him by disobeying his mandate. And instead of just like wiping them from the face of the earth in judgment, he enters into where they are and simply diversifies their language to get the, kind of get the story moving again in the direction that he wants it to go. God's people were meant to be spread out, to fill the earth, to experience all that God has for it. We weren't meant to be the same, to stay the same, to be around all of the same people. We were meant to experience other things, to be changed by those experiences and that environment, inevitably. So anytime we kind of go out of our comfort zone, we are changed by. And and this is admittedly hard. I am not someone who will willingly sign up for change and diverse experience. I have gone overseas at times uh, for various missions trips and events and things, and I always look forward to being home. I have been to El Salvador a number of times, and I just, I have this moment every time that I go where I think I can't wait to take a real shower, to be in real clothes, and to be sitting in a coffee shop with good coffee around people that I know that speak my language. 
that I can relate to. Why? Why do I like that? Because I like to be in control. Because I like to win. I like to be great. And and when I am in a kind of cross-cultural experience, cross-cultural environment, I, I feel weak. I feel out of control. I feel like everyone else around me has far more kind of cultural power in the moment, and I don't like what it makes me have to do and be and say. I don't like, like when I was in Paris, and we're talking Paris, I mean, come on, this is not exactly cross-cultural, but every time someone would ask me a question, I kept saying, see. (laughs) I felt like a moron because I was a moron. And, and my wife kept looking at me like, why do you keep saying C? It's we. But I don't know what I'm doing. And so this, when I go to El Salvador, when I go to Europe, or even sometimes when I go to Miami, I just feel out of place. I was in Carnation recently and was like, I just can't wait to get back to the city. I don't know how to function out there. Everyone has guns and stuff. God gave us a world of experience to explore, and we, like those who built Babel, oftentimes enclose ourselves, protect ourselves from experiences that would challenge us, experiences that would change us, experiences that would make us feel weakness, experiences that might make us even feel fear, but are God's invitation to more, God's invitation to grow, God's invitation to mirror him, to image him in the world. God gave us Everest, and we are content to stay at base camp, seeing in the future possibilities, but unwilling to take a step of risk And so we enclose ourselves, maybe not specifically with city walls, but with familiarity and people who think like us and act like us and do life like us. Because it makes us feel safe and secure rather than feel sent. When we choose safety and familiarity over exposure to the diversity of God's world, we miss out on all that God created and we take on a different posture to the world and to the people around us than God created us for. These, that that fear, that self-protection, that propensity to withhold, that propensity to be around what is common are the beginning seeds of racism and nationalism. It's when we protect ourselves from what's out there, we create an implicit us and an implicit them. That over time, as we continue to curve in on ourselves and protect more and protect more and surround ourselves with people who reinforce the idea that we know what's going on and we are the smart ones and we are the good ones, that that multiplies and multiplies and multiplies until it creates a culture that continually does the same. 
And if there is an implicit us, there is an implicit them. And if we cultivate that sense of us, we sometimes unknowingly cultivate a sense of them until it is not implicit any longer. These are the seeds that become over time the disease that has wrecked so much of our world. So God's concern for these people and the city that they are building is a concern that they were choosing defense over dominion, but it was also a concern that they were choosing glory over glorifying. The, the rest of their statement in verse four, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. When God made us his icons, he bestowed upon us the ability to display his glory in all of our variety and in all of our experiences. I have the ability to bear the image of God, to reflect the image of God in this world. And, and, and whoever in this room is the most different from me, and I wouldn't dare say who that is, Paolo, um, the, the person in this room who is most different from me has the same ability to reflect the image of God. That God's image is reflected in our variety, that there is not one of us who can fully reflect the image of God. There is not one kind of us that can fully reflect the image of God. It is only in the totality of us that we can even begin to reflect who God is. C.S. Lewis, in his letters to Malcolm, says this. He says, it takes all sorts to make a world or a church. This may be even truer of a church. If grace perfects nature, it must expand all our natures into the full richness of the diversity which God intended when he made them. And heaven will display far more variety than hell. This is one of Lewis's great themes that I, I just love so much. And he cultivates this idea so well across multiple books. The idea that as we become more fully ourselves, that we, in a sense, get bigger and more variety, that we get more diverse even in our own self, the more fully we experience the grace of God. And that, in fact, it is sin that makes us smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. That like a sculptor chiseling away rock to reveal more and more of the creator's vision, it requires the rough and sometimes painful moments of another person or another place different than you are, causing you to become more of who you are. See, when you try to make a name for yourself, you take on an identity. You take on an, a skill, an ability, an activity that becomes who you are. You take it on and become that one thing to the exclusion of all else. You make yourself mono when God created you stereo. 
By seeking glory, you actually become less yourself. You become smaller. Think about it for just a moment. When you try to make a name for yourself, you choose a, a, a means by which you would do that. Some activity, some skill, some ability, something that is going to be the means by which you make a name for yourself. And in order to do that well, you have to funnel all of your energy, all of your thoughts, all of your, all of your mind and skill and all of it, all of your time and all of your resources into that one thing to make a name for yourself, to be famous for that thing. And in so doing, you wedge all of what you are and all of what you could be into that one idea. They were building a tower in Shinar so that they could be known for their tower. Think about that. They were willingly making themselves known for a tower. A tower that God then openly mocks, by the way. This is so silly. That they would try to to get attention and find their place in this world by making a tall tower. It's so much stupider than what we might do with a job or a title or a person, or a church. When we try to seek glory instead of do what we were created for to glorify, we become smaller. We become less. God comes down to break up this intention in these people. That in their desire to be safe to get off of the mission that God created to, to cease to become icons reflecting the glory and image of God, but to kind of capture all of that glory for themselves. Lewis, again, in another place, reflecting on the death of one of his friends, said this. It says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's. This is his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien. I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself where the very multitude of the blessed increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest." In other words, us by ourselves can only image God so much. 
but us in community, us experiencing the life that God's called us to, experiencing the creation around it and all of its various variety exposes us and reflects us to a greater and greater degree. So we, in fact, as we explore more and more of God's world and open ourselves up to more of what God has for us, can, in fact, enlarge and increase, multiply the ways in which we glorify God and image him in the world. And the people in Shinar who were trying so hard to protect and defend and make a name for themselves and get glory for themselves were in fact decreasing their ability to be human. Decreasing their ability to reflect the image of God. And so do we when we surround ourselves, when we protect ourselves from outside influence, when we just hang out with, when we only experience, when we drive only through some neighborhoods and not others, when we only try some experiences and not others, when we only make friends with some people and not others, we actually decrease our ability to image God. When we try to shoehorn ourselves into one means by which we might make ourselves known to to get glory by some activity or skill, we decrease our ability to image God. So Babel has a New Testament counterpart to it, which demonstrates the, the kind of redemptive fulfillment of this story. And it's in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. When God speaks to all of the people gathered there in Jerusalem, Peter preaches a sermon that people from all across the world who speak different languages were able to hear in their own language. Even though Peter is just speaking it in whatever language he chose at the moment, everyone heard it in their own language. That God, by his spirit, was once again bringing unity, not by homogenizing all of the languages and allowing people to miraculously understand Latin or Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever one language they might be unified around, that by the power of the Spirit, God brings unity in the midst of their diversity in the midst of them speaking different languages and coming from radically different cultures, God is able to unite that moment and bring about a great harvest of salvation. That God continues to work in the midst even of our sin by bringing unity where we haven't sought it. By taking our diversity in the ways in which we tried to separate ourselves and redeeming it. But that this is God's heart for us. That God's heart is that we would follow in his footsteps at Pentecost that we would seek unity in our diversity, not try to homogenize everything nor kind of separate ourselves from people and things that are different than us, but to seek unity through the power of the Spirit. This week, I would encourage you to pursue the kinds of diverse experiences and people that will both demonstrate God's intention for the world and make you more fully able to reflect the image of God.
Because here's what we know. At the cross, all people and all cultures and all languages and all nations are united. The Bible bends over backwards on a number of occasions to say that in Christ, at the foot of the cross, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, that at the cross, those distinctions don't matter that we are united in Christ. Not that those distinctions go away. Jews do not become non-Jews. Gentiles don't become non-Gentiles. They simply submit to the greater unity and greater identity of the cross. And that it is there that we find the unity that only the Spirit can provide for us. As city people, we have no excuse. Diversity is all around us. Relative to the rest of our country, we have a pretty diverse congregation. And yet, there can be more. We have no excuse to avoid it. We literally have to work to avoid different kinds of people. And sometimes we do. And we need to repent of that. We need to repent of the selfishness and self-protection and fear that drives us into the arms of people who are like us that we would follow God's call and God's mission to go and make disciples of all nations and believe that it is in that process that we most fully image God. All right, question one. I'm trying to reconcile this idea of exploring God's creation but also chasing experiences. Is there an unhealthy amount of experience? No, I I don't think the issue is amount. I don't think that's what can make something unhealthy. I think that there is a way to chase experiences that is ultimately narcissistic, and that's what's unhealthy, right? So it's not a question of how many experiences that you have, but the the reason why you are chasing these experiences, because I agree, I I see this a lot. We have a very uh, uh, prosperous culture. We make more money than we ever did. I I go out to eat more times in a day than my family did in a year growing up, and I wasn't poor. It's just different. So we have the money to chase experiences, and I think that can be a real problem, especially amongst uh, younger people with less attachments, uh, that it uproots you from community. So I don't think that the problem is the number of experiences so much as why are you doing this? What is the end for which you are pursuing this experience? Are you pursuing uh, a, a relationships that could create that could be relationships of depth and meaning, or are you just kind of kind of flirting with other cultures and people and things, rather than being able and willing to actually invest in and experience kind of the hardness of embedding with a culture that, or people that uh, are not your own. So it's easy to kind of be a tourist of experiences, and that is not at all what I have in mind. That is not at all what the scriptures have in mind when it talks about the cultural mandate, right? So I don't think it's about uh, the number as much as the intention of why we are pursuing those experiences. Uh, two, What are some practical implications for us as Christians in such a divided cultural and political climate? 
the fear of the other, the fear that giving to the other takes away from our own resources. Uh, two really different questions. I'll say really quickly on the second. It's more of like an economic question. And I would just say like God's economy is not zero sum, right? So that if I don't get something, somebody else gets something that takes from me. It's not how God's economy, economy works. And that's a bit of a different conversation that I'd love to have with whoever you are. The first question though, uh, what are some practical implications in such a divided culture and political climate? I actually think this is a real opportunity for Christians to stand out uh, as being people who are willing to listen, willing to cross boundaries that other people aren't willing to cross, willing to engage with people who fundamentally disagree with us and think about the world really differently, and to be curious about why, to actually understand why someone who thinks really differently than you politically or socially, where does it come from? Right? They're not dumb, they're not evil, they have reasons. Why? Hear their story, hear those reasons, try to understand where they're coming from um, before you kind of render judgment. And frankly, very few people in the world are doing that because it requires uh, a sense of confidence in who you are, a sense of kind of settledness uh, in the, the truth that we believe about God, but it also requires an actual love for neighbor that wants to think of them as a human with thoughts and feelings and a story rather than just an idea or an ideology or an opponent. And that's really different. I think we as Christians have kind of theological resources to be able to cross those boundaries and actually kind of uh, treat another person as if they're actually a person. Uh, really quick question three. Can you make diversity happen as an individual or as a church? You cannot force uh, a culture to be diverse. We cannot make a church diverse, but each of us on our own can do what we, we can kind of make our own choices to engage across cultures, right? And so we can make our lives diverse by engaging people who aren't like us and actually building friendships with people who are not like us. So uh, I only have so much control over what the makeup of our church is, but I can do my best to make choices and to pursue relationships and to elevate uh, and platform people who are different than me that will bring different voices uh, and experiences to our world. And I actually, I don't want to call people out specifically, but I love the diversity of our team here at Icon, which was not super strategic, uh, but uh, I am a white guy born in white Western United States. Alona is the uh, child of Russian immigrants and has a story, uh, her family's story of escaping communism because they were Christians, which is crazy and super different than me. And Che, being a Korean, is a totally different story. I mean, he's from Tacoma, so it's not that far away, but like, uh, you know. <laughs> But growing up Korean in Tacoma is a totally different uh, life experience than my own. And so even just our little three-person team uh, is able to kind of model some of this, to go, okay, as we make decisions as a church and, and kind of dictate what culture is going to look like at our church, we get, we get to have those conversations together and, and figure that out together. And I think that helps. I think that contributes to creating a value for diversity. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.